0: It's incredible, the power of human conversation to get people to change beliefs. And it all centers on the idea of trust. If there's one important takeaway that I want people to remember about science denial, it's not about doubt, it's merely, it's about distrust. Doubt can be overcome with evidence, distrust can't. So you can't just share facts and expect people to come around. You've got to get in there, talk to them and see if you can get them to trust you.
1: My name is Stephen Parton, and you are listening to The Feedback Loop on Singularity Radio, where we keep you up to date on the latest technological trends and how they're impacting the transformation of consciousness and culture. This week, my guest is Lee McIntyre, who is a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University, as well as the author of several books that come to the defense of science, including his latest book, How to Talk to a Science Denier, Conversations with flat earthers, climate deniers, and others who defy reason. In this conversation, we explore the many aspects of science denialism and conspiracy theories. This includes, but is not limited to, exploring things like the role of technology, the role of personal motivations, societal issues, disinformation, and a whole lot more. Additionally, we discuss some of the solutions to these issues, with a particular emphasis at the end on a non-technical option that's available to all of us. Respectful, face-to-face conversations. And speaking of conversations, let's waste no more time on my monologue here, and let's just jump into it. Everyone, please welcome to the feedback loop, Lee McIntyre. Well then, let's just jump into this, man. Uh, I think as... You know, good philosophers, we should start with the key question here, and that is, what is a science denier? Uh, you know, it, it's a good question
0: because I've never met a science denier. <laughs> I've talked to many flat earthers and climate deniers and COVID deniers, but I've never met a science denier because they always say that they are pro-science, you know, that, that they are more scientific than the scientists, that they're more skeptical than the scientists, et cetera. And I sometimes get pushback from people who say, um, you know, how dare you call me a science denier just because I question the scientific consensus. So to make it clear, a science denier is not just somebody who questions the scientific consensus because sometimes scientists do that. A science denier is somebody who questions the scientific consensus and doesn't have any evidence of their own for their, you know, their own alternative hypothesis or evidence to show that the, you know, there's a genuine problem with the scientific consensus. And then really in some ways, most importantly, they do not ever say what evidence would convince them to change their mind. And that's the real difference, right? Because a a scientist can almost always say, you know, well, if you showed me X, Y, Z, I would be willing to change my mind. And a science denier almost never is willing to do that. And that's what shows me that they're actually a denier because it's not about facts for them.
1: Right. And what was the motivation for this book? Because this is part of a series of books that you've written now that seem to be Mm -hmm. very much coming to the defense of science. Yes. What is... What is it that makes you feel, I guess, that you have to defend science? uh... Yeah, over and over again, too.
0: Um, Well, science has continued to be under attack. You know, I write a new book every time something worse happens uh, uh, to, uh, to science. And so, you know, I started out with a book called Dark Ages, where I was defending a science of human behavior, thinking, you know, natural science is a pretty good model. Why don't we do social science more like that? Then people started to attack natural science more. And I thought, well, okay, I'll write another book defending natural science. And that one's called Respecting Truth. And then things got worse from there. And so I wrote Post-Truth and Scientific Attitude and now this new one. So I keep needing to to come to the defense of science because it keeps being attacked and the problem is growing. I mean, it's just getting worse over time. Um, There are more science deniers now than there have been. Um, And they've got a bigger voice through the internet, through just the ability to spread their misinformation and recruit new people. I mean, look what's happened with um, vaccines. I mean, uh, yes, anti-vax existed before, but it's now rampant. Uh, why? It's you know because there are maybe not that many people, but they've got a large platform who can amplify out the disinformation, the lies that help to recruit more people. And the, the nightmare scenario, I think is actually already upon us, which is that science denial has proved to be so successful that it has sparked imitators uh, who want to push back on facts other than just scientific facts. I think that's how you explain Trump's big lie. I think that's how you explain uh, the the people who claim that uh, uh, January 6th was actually uh, Antifa or BLM in disguise. Those are denialist beliefs, and they're modeled on science denial.
1: What do you think changed to make this become... Such a, a big issue now as opposed to before. Why is this an increasingly um, mm-hmm. problematic issue? Uh,
0: it, it's it's not bigger now than it's ever been, mm-hmm. right? I, I think Galileo and folks like that, you know, can attest. Yes, science now has actually been worse <laughs> in history Damn. than it was today. But but it has grown in the last um, hundred years or so, um, and uh, you know, seventy years. And and why has that happened? Science denial, uh, you know, the hardcore organized science denial really started in the modern era with the cigarette companies, which in 1953 were, you know, worried about a, a forthcoming study that was going to show a link between smoking and lung cancer. And they hired a public relations specialist who told them to fight the science through public relations, through... Uh, donations to Congress through full page newspaper ads in American papers, through sham trade organizations that would do scientific research. And they, you know, they rode that gravy train for 40 years of creating doubt where there wasn't any. And so I think that that made it, you know, that provided the model. Naomi Oreskes says that's the blueprint for climate denial and, you know, other things. And you can really see the the parallels. But then something even worse happened, which is that the liars got a microphone, the internet. And so now the fringe opinion is capable of being shared so widely that you don't have to spend money to take out full page newspaper ads anymore. You can just go on the internet and just a few trolls can make uh, a big difference. Uh, Remember there was a a study out of the uh, Center for Countering Digital Hate last year which found that 65 percent of the anti-vax propaganda on twitter was due to 12 people Mm. so imagine what the cigarette companies could have done if they
1: had had that right do you think there's some justification here potentially because of that history like specifically i think of i believe it was in the 80s you know, scientists were paid to demonize, I think, fats instead of sugars, or something like mm-hmm. this, and basically create fraudulent studies yeah. so that the so that the public would, you know, buy their products and not somebody else's products. And historically, you know, there are a lot of p- profit-driven lies that come from yes. so-called experts and scientists. Um, That's right. Did, is there some, you know, is mm. how how easy is it for us to? looked at this, these people and say, you know, how could yeah. you possibly think this way when there is this trail of evidence that says you've been lied to yeah. plenty of times in the past?
0: Um, I have to draw a distinction between the people who are sham doing sham work, mm. fraudulent work, and the people who are uh, merely having their work cherry picked out and publicized because it already fits the narrative that, you know, whoever's paying for the research wants. So fraud is intolerable in science. I mean, fraud is a a terrible thing. And, you know, I wish it didn't exist. And the fact that there is fraud uh, is certainly a a black eye against science, except for the fact that science polices it uh, pretty well. I mean, they're pretty harsh on people who are uh, considered frauds. They get kicked out of the profession uh, basically when they're they're caught. Um, And bias is always a terrible thing. Um, And this is why they have uh, rules at many journals that you have to disclose your funding source and you have to disclose any conflicts of interest, right? You don't, and and, uh, I mean, if you think about it, what's the reason for that? It's because some of the Early studies, which showed that smoking wasn't that dangerous, came from the American Tobacco Institute. I mean, so guess what they're going to find, right? So if you've got, you know, big tobacco, fossil fuels, you know, the gun lobby, uh, sugar, you know, what, whatever you, you know has a, a publicist and a lot of money, uh, you know, trying to recruit scientists to do their their bidding, um, and it's fraudulent work. That's terrible. But I think there's a a more subtle thing that happens sometimes, which is that some of these industries fund research and don't tell the scientists what to do, but they merely cherry pick out the ones who come up with the results that they like and bury the ones that they don't like. Uh, Kaylin O'Connor, a philosopher out of, uh, I think it's, uh, is it San Diego, uh, California, somewhere in California, Uh, I heard her give a paper last year that was just devastating about this, which showed that, you know, why the scientists push back against criticism of their work as being biased, because nobody ever told them, you know, what studies to do, nobody ever told them how the result was supposed to come out, but it's just that their work was cherry picked off by the industry as, you know, look at this great work. And maybe they're even kind of proud of that, but you know, they're, they're being used. So there is some, there are things going on that can make people skeptical. But what I always wonder is, so what else you got, right? I mean, we can try to improve science and and we should, but that doesn't mean that science is evil or that there's a better alternative to science it means that i think you know i'm a defender of science i think we need to make it better and i wrote an earlier book called the scientific attitude where i had uh, chapters devoted to fraud and to all the things that fall short of fraud and all the ways that scientists sort of cheat without cheating and what the profession is doing about it so you know the fact if we're transparent about that if we really uh try to overcome bias. I think that's the best that we can do. It, it it would be like saying, well, journalists make mistakes sometimes, so why should we trust them? Well, they make mistakes, but good, good journalistic ethics says that they're supposed to print a retraction mm-hmm. and you know try to rectify the mistake. And I think that's the same sort of thing that science should try to do.
1: What do you think that we can do in this day and age, like you mentioned before, where we do have this issue of technology amplifying voices so dramatically to sort out the experts from the non-experts. You know, we have a big issue Mm -hmm. with, you know, let's put it this way. You can put anything you want in your Twitter bio. You can create Mm -hmm. a nice webpage that says you're a doctor of XYZ. You can make a nice looking article. At this Mm -hmm. point, we have so much information coming at us and we're all just skimming it and there's so many people claiming to be so many things. How do we, I guess, kind of fight back against this onslaught of information that just is frankly chaotic and doesn't align? Uh, Pay
0: pay attention, Uh, You but just be careful of uh, what you consume. No, I mean, the most important thing is to realize that we're already in an information war. Mm. This is not happening by accident. This is happening because it's in someone's interest to confuse us about who's an expert and who isn't and what their results are, et cetera. And knowing that, it should make us much more skeptical consumers of information. Uh, Sometimes they're really, really good at uh, making it look reliable, because sometimes the disinformers will take some shred of truth and then use it to you know something that maybe sounds plausible on its face and then use it to tell a larger lie. But then when challenged, they'll go back to the little shred of truth and say, oh, this is where it came from. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and you also just have outright fraud. Uh, I had somebody last year on the internet who was um, using my book as her book. Um, you know, it, it, she didn't say I wrote this book, but she had it as the banner on her Twitter feed and claimed that she had a PhD, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, uh, who else would have caught that maybe but me, <laughs> who knew, wait a minute, that you know, that's not right. Um, she didn't have, you know, the name on the front of the book. So, I mean, th- this happens. So we just, we have to pay attention. And if if you realize that you're in an environment where people are trying to bamboozle you, it heightens your awareness. And you have to remember that that's the the job of the disinformers, is to make you so cynical and so confused that you think, well, maybe the truth isn't knowable. Maybe all experts are biased. Maybe there is no such thing as truth or objective knowledge. Because once you're in that mood, what are you, you're you're more capable of falling for their lies.
1: Yeah, what allows us to reconcile the cognitive dissonance that comes from accepting large swaths of technology that run our entire lives when it's convenient mm-hmm. for us and then decide that four <laughs> small elements of technology are completely, you know, yeah. pernicious machinations of some kind of conspiratorial nature.
0: I you know you you ask a really a favorite question of mine because I'm not sure I know the answer why mm. but I know the answer what Hmm. and it which is that you're you're correct um i a lot of science deniers are not anti-science they're just anti the type of science that offends their particular interests whether they be economic or political or ideological i call them cafeteria skeptics they go through the buffet and they pick out what they want and they leave the rest The, the most shocking example of this is in November 2018 I went to the flat earth international conference where they're not fooling they genuinely believe that the earth is flat yet most of them flew to that conference on planes while believing that the airline pilots were in on the conspiracy that the earth is flat so they trusted them to fly the plane correctly to get them there but they didn't that they thought they were liars in league with the devil Uh, on covering up the shape of the earth. They tweeted the, uh, they live tweeted the events, not understanding that some of the traffic from their phones was bouncing off satellites, which were orbiting the round earth. So it is the height of hypocrisy and stupidity to do that because how do you know, but, there's a real attraction to it. I mean, we, we do it all the time. I, I, I get examples of this in my talks of back before COVID when we could do them face-to-face. People would come up to me afterward and say, wow, you know, I really loved what you said about the fossil fuel companies. You know, I, I just, I hate them. And yeah, they're behind so much of climate denial. And, you know, you were really right, uh, you know, about this and that, but boy, did you get it wrong about the MMR vaccine." And here's why. And then they'll start shoving all these things in my face that are fraudulent. Um, and I wonder why are they doing that? Why don't they understand that this, you know, the same, the same brain that can understand that the disinformation is corrupting their views about vaccines is the same brain that understands perfectly yeah. you know the people trying to bamboozle them on fossil fuels why does it work in one case and not another it is a type of cognitive dissonance because it's it's very hard to um it's hard to turn off that cognitive bias mm. that says there are larger forces behind this
1: do you feel that it's largely asho- associated with something That's maybe either like spiritual or political. Maybe it's a search for meaning, a desire to, um, see connections where there aren't any, maybe embracing mystery in a world that seems to have become very mundane or simply a desire to support your political tribe. Like, do you think that is driving a lot of this, or do you think there's other elements at play?
0: I I think part of it is uh, just what you said there initially that there's a great need for the human brain to make order. Mm. even when there isn't any, when we look at clouds, oh, that looks like a fish. That looks like a train. You know, uh, why do we do that? Because we just, we see order where there is none. And I think at some level, that's what conspiracy theories are about. You know, if if you, if you give people enough random data, they will find a pattern. I mean, isn't that what QAnon really is? They're just, Mm -hmm. you know, random, random data that seems like it's connected, well, how could that possibly be a coincidence? You know, but because, well, some things just are, but it doesn't seem like that's, that's possible. And we're threatened by that. I mean, we want, people who studied conspiracy theories understand that we're threatened by a world that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. We're threatened by a world that we don't know where we fit into it. And it's kind of an ego boost to think that you understand something that other people don't understand. The best book I've ever read on this is by uh, Kusim Kassam, best name ever of anybody. Uh, uh, He's a a philosopher in the University of Warwick, his book is called Conspiracy Theories, and it's just really fascinating to, to learn about how deeply embedded conspiracy theories are in the human psyche. First conspiracy theory in recorded history was Nero, um, who was out of town at the time that the city of Rome burned. And so of course he got blamed for it because he was out of town, you know try, must have been Nero. He got back, was so uh, ticked that being blamed with this that he made up the conspiracy theory that no it was due to the Christians, which mm. you know started when they burned the Christians alive. Um, so conspiracy theories are deeply embedded and you know go back a long time how do we fight them? Again, I think awareness, you know, to, to, to say to a conspiracy theorist, um, why are you, I mean, here's the the real beauty of a conspiracy theory. If there's any evidence for it at all, even if it's the tiniest little bit, just a shred the conspiracy theorists will say, see, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: but if there's no evidence, they say, that's just how good the conspirators are yeah which means they that o- evidence can't convince them right they only so that's need why one that in- point that's right so that that's why that that question what evidence would convince you mm. that you were wrong is really important
1: yeah you, you mentioned something there briefly i think that has to do with kind of the natural human tendency as a result to its environment and you know i'm doing some post-grad research right now around neuroscience and stress and and one of my Mm -hmm. favorite topics i guess is this idea that you know you have the approach or withdrawal that kind of Mm -hmm. results as an activation of your your nervous system and i can't help but wonder if there's something going on here where because of maybe the disenfranchisement of the masses maybe because we do live in a system right now that in a capitalistic sense isn't very Mm -hmm. fair and and doesn't offer a lot of opportunities for you know stress alleviation let's just call it um it feels like there might be some things at play here where we're kind of setting up the average person to be in this kind of withdrawal mode where they retreat to the familiar they retreat to these ideas that give them solace (laughs) and they can't open themselves up to these more challenging yeah. concepts. Do you think that's at play here?
0: I, I think there's something to that. I mean, and especially if other people around them believe the same thing, mm. because that, there's a social aspect to belief. But when people feel alienated, when people feel, you know, as you say, under stress, that does make them, I think, more prone to conspiracy theory thinking. Mm-hmm. To go back to the flat earthers for a moment, virtually all of them had a conversion experience something happened in their life that caused them to question whether they could trust scientists or really any government officials anyone sometimes it was a personal trauma a health trauma you know divorce something for some of them it was 9-11 you know some other large-scale event that caused them to say wait a minute wait a minute uh, th- there's got to be. I don't trust anybody anymore. There's got to be something more here. So when people feel confused and alienated, I think there is. Th- th- you know that can happen, and and I just think and I mean you're the the neuroscientist. I I, I don't know if there's work done on this. I think some people are just prone more prone to conspiracy theory thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, put them in an fMRI someday and figure it out because I think that they. You know, the, the people that I know who are conspiracy theorists, they don't just believe one, they believe 20. You know, why Why would they keep doing that? Right. Um, it, it's, I mean, yes, there could still be an environmental explanation for it, I suppose. But but I think I, I'd really be interested in what the brain chemistry shows someday. I mean, I, I don't know how much work has been done on this. Um, people who are deniers, people who are political extremists people who believe in conspiracy theories it, it's really interesting to me to know what their what you know are they just different in their brains
1: yeah i mean i don't want to speak out of turn or out of my expertise here but I, I there are some interesting there's interesting work done i guess with things like you know ringworms for example they won't do a straight line towards food they'll take roundabout ways to explore and mm-hmm. part of the idea is that humans are uh i think it's called infer infermaphores where it's like we eat information um mm-hmm. and part of that means that you know you get dopamine for information the same way you get dopamine for food and sex mm-hmm. and so being able to grab little snippets of information are like evolutionary advantages uh-huh. that give you a, a spike of pleasure so I'm wondering sure if ma- maybe there's something to that. Because imagine if you're a conspiracy theory person and you're reading a forum and you find that thing that, yeah, that chinks all of your, that just suddenly your worldview just clicks into place, and you I told get that, you so. I yeah, was that right. spike of dopamine. Yeah. That's like, oh, sure. I did it. I, I imagine there's a lot of that going
0: on. There's a there's a uh, I, I forget the guy's name. I think it was M- Hoff. He did an experiment with conspiracy theorists in which he found that when he he made up a conspiracy theory, just total fabrication, and then he shared it with experimental subjects. And what he found in the control was that for half of them, he said, this was a secret. Nobody knew about this. The other half, he said, oh yeah, this is a well-known phenomenon that's been around for 10 years. The people who heard that it was a secret were more likely to believe it mm-hmm. because there's that attraction to secret knowledge. We all want to be Neo in the Matrix. We want to be the one who swallows the red pill. We're going to wake up all the others, the sheeple, right? We're we're the ones the elite in the know. There's a great attraction to that.
1: Yeah, one of my favorite quotes is that we're all the hero of our own story. Yeah. And I think that's there's definitely got to be an attraction there to be the person who, you know, we all want the The invitation to Hogwarts, or like the you know secret society mm-hmm. to come by and say welcome, you know, to- you're
0: the special one. Yes, yes, absolutely.
1: Yeah. What is what is the I guess progress, or um, how does this play out? Like, what is this a slippery slope if we don't find some way to kind of put our foot down now and sort sort this like post truth era out? Is this going to go into a place where we do yeah. see science maybe fall apart or you know does yeah. science kind of hold civilization together in some ways and if we just start throwing out facts as meaningful we're putting ourselves in a real dangerous situation
0: well there there were the dark
1: ages sure that lasted
0: about 700 years so i mean it, it there's the, the progress that a civilization makes i mean science was you know invented by the greeks and then lost for an awfully long time so you know that that can happen again yeah um my i think that there are certain people that you know they're never going to get they're never going to become deniers but the the slippery slope is that with disinformation doing what it's doing now they're getting more and more of them and the, mm-hmm. the you know the the percentage that they're getting, what happens when it goes past 50%, what happens when it's the majority of American voters, then then we're in real trouble, right? Because then policy can be made on ridiculous grounds. Or if you have a dictator, Mm -hmm. uh, look what happened in South Africa a few years back with uh, uh, HIV AIDS. Um, The uh, President Mbeke uh, said that um, he thought that AZT was part of a Western plot, and that uh, HIV/AIDS could be cured with garlic and lemon juice. Three hundred thousand people died, so you know that that's the nightmare. That that's yeah. a terrible thing. And I've got to say, watching the the American response to COVID has not been heartening, um, because we're and again, it's not by accident. We were targeted. P- people. For whatever perverse interests wanted us to believe false information and die and i can say a little more about that if you want but it seems to me that an awful lot of people fell for it and still believe it and you know won't i mean i've i've talked to anti-vaxxers now anti covid people covid vaccine who were so dug in that they'll say things like well i know the covid vaccine is um, is good, and I know it probably won't hurt me. But damn it, you can't tell me what to do. I'm not going to take it anyway. Right. And where does that come from? I mean, they're, they're so dug in that even once they've given up the 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 factual thing that was wrong, they don't give up the conclusion that it drove them to. Right. Uh, it's it's just it's it's tragic.
1: Do you think that the science denialism community is? just a very vocal and a most larger than life because it's controversial community. Yeah. And, and and by that I mean are we dealing with maybe fourteen people making memes? Or do you think this is something that is, you know, much more big issue? Because I think I was talking yeah. last night to someone and was saying, you know, we have nine out of ten people taking vaccines, but if you take ten percent of a country with three hundred million people right. and one percent of yeah. those people are loud, you still see hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah. In some ways it's,
0: I mean, there's no way to answer that question. I don't know of a national survey about mm. you know, denialism, but they don't have to be that large. They don't have to be the majority to have a great influence. Look at how the forces of uh, against climate change mm. have managed to hamstring the American Congress. So most Americans, think that climate change is real and that we should do something about it but congress doesn't act why not because that minority of people who are deniers or who are not really deniers but they're funding the denialism have a stranglehold on congress so it doesn't have to i mean the danger is not merely their number the danger is their influence And I'll make the case that their number is rising. Mm -hmm. Um, Not to, uh, I think this was, uh, um, I can't remember whether the number was pre or post COVID, but I remember, this is bad because I don't remember the source, but it was that 22% of Americans self-identified as anti-vaxxers. That's a lot. That's a lot. 7% of the population of Brazil think that the earth is flat. Um, You know, look at... um, I mean, how long has evolution denial <laughs> been around? I mean, it, it's it just doesn't, yes, they're a fringe in terms of their um, beliefs, but what happens when that fringe is able to dictate national policy? And I mean, even, even when, even once Biden came into office, even once, you know, we were doing our COVID policies based on, know solid scientific research and the you know the public health people didn't have to be uh you know always kowtowing to to trump in order not to be fired they still bent over backwards not to insult the people who were the covid deniers
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, it it just it, it it pollutes the information stream it pollutes the 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 world we live in when
1: deniers have such a large voice. So how do we bring them back into the fold? How do we reconcile this relationship of, you know, the pro science versus the, the, uh, science denials?
0: It's the first thing to do is to keep from creating more of them. Mm. So the first thing to do is to understand that science denial is not an accident. It's a lie. It happens because there are people who profit from lying about factual matters. It's easy to see how the tobacco companies and the fossil fuel companies did that. But sometimes it's not just about money, sometimes it's about political power or ideology. Think here of anti vax or uh, anti evolution. But there's another force at work because sometimes it's uh, intergovernmental. Uh, a shocking amount of the anti-COVID propaganda comes from Russian foreign intelligence. The GRU is making up things about the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, putting them out there. They get picked up by Western media, and we're dying because of it. Now, the irony is that they did such a good job that they also created anti-vaxxers in Russia, too, who are refusing to take the Sputnik Five vaccine, which is the one that you know Putin was hoping that I mean that's why they were attacking the Moderna and Pfizer, because they wanted the Sputnik V to be the one that went around the world. So you know, stop creating so many uh, see if we can choke off the disinformation. Either how do you get the disinformers to stop? Maybe that's hard, but to choke off the amplifiers, just something with. Facebook, or Twitter, or YouTube, where science deniers are created galore, uh, I think that's incumbent upon us. But the other, and this is what I'm writing about right now, the thing I've already written about in my last book is what to do about the legions of people who have already been infected with disinformation. And I think the solution there is that we have to start talking to one another again, which is the hardest thing to do. When you think that somebody is wrong, and when you're angry, and when it's us against them. But if you talk to somebody face to face and you listen and you're calm and you show them respect, that builds trust. And what disinformation does is it not only gives you false information, it erodes your trust in people who don't believe the same falsehood that you do. And so people are always flummoxed by, well, why can't I just share facts? it's because the person doesn't trust you. The facts are not gonna convince them because they think that the person telling it to them is a liar. So the magic of face-to-face conversation is that it increases trust. And once trust is increased, then you can begin to share facts. And there are numerous uh, anecdotal accounts that when science scenarios change their mind, this is how it happens. But there's also now some really the first solid empirical work to show that science deniers can be converted. Uh, this was a, sto- a study by uh, Cornelia Bates and Philip Schmid in Nature Human Behavior in June 2019. And they did a controlled experiment which they showed that you could convert science deniers if you handled it in the right way.
1: Yeah, this makes me think of, um, I was trying to think of his name, Daryl Davis, I believe. Uh, yes it's it's yeah. I know it's not science, but you know he was the black man who converted dozens and dozens of people who were in the kKK out two hundred yeah, hundreds, yeah, um you know, and he did it by sitting down having face- to- face conversations, yes, and just honestly respecting and being kind to the other person
0: daryl davis is a, is a, an amazing person he's he's one of my heroes because if he can do that. Yeah. Why can't I talk people into getting the COVID vaccine? Yep. I mean, his and he's got YouTube tapes. I think he's even got a book. I mean, he's got YouTube videos. You can, um, you can hear him talk about how he does it, and it's yep. it's amazing. And it, yeah, so I didn't invent this method. I mean, this method um, is used in various branches of uh, of psychology. Uh, the street epistemology people use it. Um, Eli Saslow wrote a book called Rising Out of Hatred about Mm. the conversion of a a, a neo-Nazi, you know, white, virulent white supremacist who got talked out of his beliefs by a group of students, a group of Jewish students who invited him to Shabbat dinner uh, week after week until they converted him in college. I mean, it's incredible, the power of human conversation to get people to change beliefs. And it all centers on the idea of trust if there's one important takeaway that i want people to remember about science denial it's not about doubt it's a merely it's about distrust doubt can be overcome with evidence distrust can't so you can't just share facts and expect people to come around you've got to get in there talk to them and see if you can get them to trust you and that is such hard work to do um that it's and it, it doesn't always work and it's almost too late by the time somebody goes down that rabbit hole. I mean, that's why it's so important to keep people from becoming science deniers. You know, when I was at the flat earth convention, I was not just trying to talk the people out of it. I was trying to get the other people listening to get some of those seeds of doubt planted by the time they show up at the flat earth convention, they're pretty far gone. And most of the people I was speaking with were the speakers from the stage. I'm never going to get them, but you know, I wanted the hardest task possible. So I went, you know, to this conference to see if this would work and I didn't convert anybody, but I got them to listen. And the way I did it is I listened to them. Yeah.
1: yeah I always, I always say the best thing you can do, <clears throat> even if it's sounds kind of manipulative, if you want to convince somebody, if you want to play a little game, just being quiet, listening and quieting yes. your ego long enough to, to show that mutual respect gives you a chance to think you know like you said plant a seed and even yeah. if they walk away from that conversation not convinced i think that seed can be watered through different things they experience True. throughout their life and then maybe eventually That's growing right. into something and they
0: and they come back i mean i encourage you to to look at the anecdotal accounts of anti vaxxers climate deniers others who have come back it's always that way yeah. it's exactly that way somebody was patient somebody took the time said what are your concerns here or convince me that you're right and then when they can't do it oh maybe there's something wrong there
1: yeah it seems a very big part of the issue here is that very natural instinct for for us us versus them and Mm -hmm. that dualistic hostility doesn't make a lot of space for a middle ground where you can come together and just be like hey it can be us and them we can just talk here and you know, and I think it has a lot to do with the social aspect that you mentioned before, right? If you're, yes, if denying your conspiracy exiles you from your community and your tribe, That's you right. will accept right. whatever lie you have to to stay. Involved. Exactly,
0: and the social psychologists knew that in the fifties. Yeah, I mean that that was, you know, so so here here we are now, and and then there are these brave people like Daryl Davis um two that I that I met in I never met Daryl Davis but two that I met in person were uh, Dave and Aaron Neinhauser who run an organization up in coal country in Pennsylvania called Hear Yourself Think this is a tiny thing I think they run it out of their living room but they do training seminars based on their videos where they go to Trump rallies and I mean these they're um they're um they're democrats i mean they're you know on the, the liberal side of things but they're also former union organizers i mean so you know they are they they understand uh um the mentality of some of the the trump voters and they go to these rallies and they film their encounters to try to have respectful conversations it is searing stuff i mean you watch one of those videos you want to watch them all mm-hmm. because it's pretty hard to be patient and show respect for somebody who's screaming in your face. But the amazing thing is that if you just wait a minute, they kind of stop screaming. And then maybe they want to hear what you have to say. And they're just, they're masters at this. I, I wrote about them a little bit in my book. They're—they're—they're. They're, they're, it, it's really, I mean, there are people who do this. I'm doing it for science denial. The people who do this for political differences for uh you know white supremacy extremism Uh, look the thing that you mentioned isn't that called active listening in psychology Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. um yeah it's 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 used all over
1: it feels like we're in a phase right now where we have to kind of embrace the discomfort of that yelling for a minute as people move from being virtual objects that we're used to yelling at online to becoming mm-hmm. people again like it feels yeah. one potential downside of of covid and the lockdowns and potentially yeah. why there's so much anti-vaccine uh issues is because maybe we've really reduced our chance to talk to people face to face like yeah. you said
0: it's i mean it, yes i i think that's right how do you have a conversation face to face in the, in the COVID era, e- even, uh, even, um, even online. I mean, you know, the uh, Twitter is the worst possible way to convince somebody, but I, I was giving a talk the other day at a, a college where right at the end of the talk, somebody who was, uh, you know, this was a virtual talk and somebody, you know, came on and couldn't see his face, could just hear his voice. And, you know, he was the person who said to me, you know, you, you can't tell me what to do. I'm not going to take the vaccine. I know it's not going to hurt me. Uh, you know, I, but you know, you, you're just, you're not going to tell me. And I tried to be patient and, and just, and listen. And I couldn't tell by the end, I don't think I converted him, but I, you know, by the end, I I think he was prepared for a fight. I think he was prepared for me to be angry with him, but I wasn't. I, I said, um, look, you're, you're a grown-up person. Nobody can tell you what to do. Nobody's, even if there's a vaccine mandate, nobody's going to force you to get it. You know, nobody's going to vaccinate you at gunpoint. This is up to you. But here are some reasons why you might you know, consider doing it. And, and, I, and I hit him with uh, kind of below the belt because the thing I hit him with was love. I said, if, you may not want to do it, out of your self-interest but don't you care about your fellow human beings what about people who are immune compromised what about children who can't take the vaccine you know you're a young strong person maybe you'll get through it fine but aren't there other people that you potentially love or care about maybe some that you haven't met yet but you would care about
1: yeah And and
0: you know he he was I could hear the pain in his voice by the end of our conversation. And after that, he just said, okay, well, thank you. And signed off. So I knew I made him uncomfortable. I don't know if I changed his mind, but I I kind of felt like, um, you know, despite the handicap of it, not being in person, I couldn't even see his face. That I was trying to demonstrate the the power of patience because he was,
1: he was upset. I think that's one of the things that gets me about this topic. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you specifically was, you know, I think there are a lot of issues that affect so many people, whether they realize it or not. Um, And there are so many things like climate change and healthcare that are scientific issues. And if we can't come together and talk about it to create some kind of policy, those issues just either continue unabated or are exacerbated and then everyone suffers because simply because two human beings can't have a conversation
0: it's i studied environmental ethics when i was Mm. in high school which was the dark ages in the 70s i mean way way a long time ago and i remember reading barry commoner and garrett Hardin and these people talking about the commons if if we don't cooperate with our fellow human beings it's to all of our detriment Climate change is coming for us all. COVID has come for us all. I mean, it's not like you can just say, "Oh, you know that—that's you. That's not me." Well, you know, us versus them, polarization. But these are on issues that affect all of us. Mm-hmm. And you know, how do you get somebody to care about that? One of the most important things that I ever read—you'd think I would remember the name of it. I remember the author. His name is Michael Stocker, S-T-O-C-K-E-R. is philosopher. And I was, I had a section in a course on meta ethics I was teaching um, to, to my students. And the kind of the ultimate question was don't we really need ethics? The, the stalker asked this question, would we really need ethics if we had love? Mm. Isn't ethics, you know, to make us feel an obligation because we wouldn't otherwise do it? But if you love the person, you'd do it anyway. You do it because you love them, not because you felt obligated or not because you felt guilty or because like Kant, you reasoned yourself into thinking it was the right thing. You just would do it because that's the person that you love. And that's the tragedy of science denial, because especially when we're cut off, especially when we're polarized, we don't know people on the other side, people that we would potentially care about. And I, don't, I faced this myself, talk about dissonance, where I had met some fishermen in the Maldives who were broken by the fact that their country was virtually disappearing and that within their lifetime, it would be gone, their whole nation, and they would have to relocate. And one of them tragically said to me, outside Maldives, no one cares. <laughs> he used the word care. He didn't say they didn't believe. Yeah. So they didn't care. And that's, I don't think anybody could have met him and come back from the trip unchanged in their attitude toward climate change. But, you know, through geographic distance, you know, for whatever reason, people aren't hearing those stories. That's why I wrote about that particular story in my book. Because by proxy, I want people to meet that guy and understand there are people that, you would be your neighbors would be your friends you don't know them but they're dying from your decisions
1: yeah do you think part of the issue here is that uh the issues that are being denied the science that's being denied are, are so abstract or ephemeral or large that it basically becomes incomprehensible like it's hard to even comprehend mm. 8 billion human beings in a thing called evolution and therefore <laughs> i just create a conspiracy to explain it away so I don't have to struggle with the comprehension. Maybe.
0: I mean, maybe. A lot of it's motivated reasoning. Yeah. We don't care because we don't want to care. I mean, I would believe that if people... I would believe that that was the motivation if you could tell me that people always did the right thing when it was some local issue that would affect their neighbor, but they don't. No. Right? They, they. I mean, people... I think what we're really missing in this is a culture, and this was an important moment for me in my own research. It's not just about belief, it's about caring. Mm. Even if you could get everybody in the world to believe that climate change was real, would that necessarily change? I mean, those members of Congress, that majority in Congress that don't believe in climate change, Or the let me put it this way, the ones who are holding it up, because maybe they're not even the majority, given the filibuster rules. Um, Do they know that it's real, but they just care about something else more? I mean, Ted Cruz, he's a smart guy. He must know that climate change is real, and he's just being an ass about it. But why is he doing that? Because he wants to stay in office, because he's more concerned with his own political power than he is, you know, the future of humanity. What? it's it, it, that that's the
1: problem i also think there is this challenge though i believe it was julia gallif um she's a member of the reason community and i think she mentioned one time and i really appreciated this in her book that you know with the right presuppositions or uh, chosen data sets you can reason perfectly well and arrive at the wrong conclusion and i'm wondering yes. if some of these individuals are just surrounding themselves with so much of the wrong kind of data that their the reasons fantastic that the reasoning that they're yeah. doing is logical but they're using a very bad data set
0: well they cherry pick motivated right. reasoning again but right. but i i i think you're giving them too much credit mm. because i think that um uh, uh Lewis Sinclair said, "It's hard to get a man to believe something when his salary depends on him not believing it." Hundred percent. People, people can, people can work their way around to believing all sorts of crazy things, especially when that people around them believe the same thing, and um, they're not all confused. And, and and that's where I that's where I lose patience. By the way. I'll be patient all day for somebody who's a victim of disinformation and, you know, they've just been bamboozled, but somebody who's an apologist for an industry that is, you know, harming people to make a profit, that's where I lose my patience because they should know better. And, you know, I I will have things back and forth on the internet. People contact me and, you know, I'll, I'll be respectful, you know, all day long. But every now and then I get contacted by somebody who's a shill. Um, and I'll just, I'll tell him, you just don't give a damn. You know, it's not, it's not worth me interacting with you because you're just pretending you're, you know, you're a, a public relations person for an industry that's making a lot of money on this lie. And you're not debating in good faith. And I'm never going to convince you. And in fact, you're doing damage. Goodbye. Absolutely. And, and you know, and, and they can. And then they get all high and mighty about it, about, oh, I thought, you know, you, it, it's, th- you, you, you have professionals mm. who are doing this. Um, th- that's, and, and you're never going to get them. And, and those are folks that I just, I think the only thing you can do is punish them. I think the only yeah. thing you can do, and, and look, there are also the enablers like, like Facebook and Twitter. I mean, could, do they care? Could they do more? Yes, they could. How do I know that? Because they do things about what they care about. Mm. Facebook, um, I, I ask when I when I give my talk in a big audience, I, I ask this question and I, I've never had anybody raise their hand. How many of you have ever seen a beheading or a terrorist attack on Facebook? Nobody ever raises their hand. And the answer why is because Facebook polices for that because they care about doing that because it would affect their bottom line. Um, could they police disinformation about science, about climate change, about vaccines? Well, you know, yes, they could, but they don't. Why not? Well, they say, oh, but they do. They do. They do so much. You know, they flag this. They flag that. Why don't they do more? They, they have the, it's the, the algorithms. I remember reading about, you know, Facebook took such a beating after the for the outcome of the 2016 election and their potential role in it. That just before the 2020 election, they dialed those algorithms more toward truth than toward engagement. Mm -hmm. And then almost immediately after the election, they dialed it back. And what would we have? January 6th. Mm. So they're causing and I'm not saying it's a straight line, but how do we know how much influence they had? They apparently have quite a bit. Could they do more? Yes. Why don't they? Because they don't care.
1: Yeah. To, to that end, do you think, and, and I know asking for a solution is asking yeah. you to solve world hunger, but is yeah. there is there a particular domain or strategy that you see yes. as the best path, maybe something that's a cultural shift, maybe something that's a policy shift, maybe something that's a technological innovation? Is there a yes. route forward here that you find are you most optim- optimistic about? Yes.
0: Um, so there's a the disinformation pipeline starts with the disinformers it goes through the amplifiers and it ends up with the the people who are victimized by it you can talk to the victims you can try to get the disinformers to stop doing what they're doing both are really hard the pinch point is the middle the pinch point are the amplifiers how do we keep the amplifiers from spreading the disinformation. That's where I think we're going to have the most uh, luck. Um, there are legislative solutions if Congress would ever understand that we're already in an information war. They could, you know, the um, Rule Two Seventy governing the uh, the internet companies. Um, hell, bring back the fairness doctrine. Um, you know, for for TV. Uh, You know, look at how much disinformation comes out of Fox News. Um, You know, those are legislative things. But there are also technical things that, that, um, I mean, one other, this is legislative too, but it bears on a technical solution. Imagine, uh, look at the effect that Frances Haugen had, the whistleblower from Facebook when she came forward. Imagine if academic researchers could get their hands on the algorithms not the data, not not the individual user information, which is, you know, always why they, Facebook, oh, we can't share that, it's private. I mean, the algorithms. Right. It shouldn't take a whistleblower to, you know, to, to reveal the, the dangers of the algorithms. Um, there's a cognitive scientist named Stephen Lewandowski, who's, uh, I just heard give a paper on this, that was just brilliant because he made the argument that, you know, look how much effect we might be able to have If we could, you know, as researchers, you know, we're not talking about regulation. We're just talking about transparency. We're just talking about having, you know, a board of academic researchers look at the algorithms and see how much potential harm they might be causing. Now, I ask you, why doesn't Facebook and Twitter want to do that, right? Because they're making too much money. From from the way that it is, but you know there there are there are several targeted things like that to clamp down on the amplification of disinformation that I think would help. and we just have to for the rest of us, we just have to stop thinking of this as a natural disaster. It's not a natural disaster. It's an information war. it this has happened to us on purpose. This has happened to us because, Disinformers the world over, some of which work for foreign government intelligence, decided to tear American society apart by undermining our trust in science, in democracy, in, you know, uh, education, whatever they can get their hands on. It's not, and by the way, the, the Biden administration just did a brilliant job fighting back against russian disinformation about ukraine Hmm. i mean ukraine putin was trying to come up with every excuse he could possibly come up with for why ukraine was really the threat right and every time he did jen saki would get up there at the podium and slap it down and it was gorgeous that's the way you fight disinformation that my favorite was the one and i'm still trying to chase down the original source on this but i saw it on stephen colbert he said that um The. The uh, Putin had made the argument that Ukraine didn't even exist before Russia existed, that that they that they were just a satellite, you know, an afterthought that, you know, it was kind of mother Russia and they were just, you know, the, the little child. And then I think it was the U.S. State Department. I've got to watch the video again, but it was some official U.S. government agency on Twitter released four pictures of Ukrainian churches from the 11th century and four pictures of the woods to represent what moscow looked like in the 11th century Wow! making the point that you ukraine had a culture mm. had a, you know had a high culture before moscow was even on the map now that is epic level trolling for the american government to be doing but that is precisely the way to fight disinformation yeah. so we can do that we can do that for uh, uh, you know, foreign intelligence against Ukraine. If we can do that, we can do that on vaccines. We can do that on anything.
1: So we why need aren't to, we? We need to make better memes and be nicer to people. <laughs> i I'm,
0: you, you know what? Um, nicer to them face to face, but a really <sighs> cutting meme. You know, ridicule. Not again, not face to face, but ridicule of the idea. Mm-hmm. Ridicule that allows somebody to say, Oh well, well I never really believed that. It can be darned effective, yeah. I miss John Stewart. You know yeah. John Stewart uh, did a lot of good by holding the feet of the powerful to the fire Absolutely. because you know ridicule is is really powerful.
1: Absolutely. Well, Lee, we're coming up on time here, but uh, do you have any closing thoughts before we we jump off?
0: Uh, no, you asked good questions, and I was able to talk about the things I wanted to to talk about. Thanks for the opportunity.
1: Of course, we'll point people towards the book and uh, towards your other work, and we'll call it there. Thank you Uh, so much. And
0: my website, com. It'll all be
1: on there. No, you're fine. So thank you, Lee. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you.